Good evening and welcome to the Legal Eagle Review, an informative and thought-provoking weekly show covering legal issues affecting everyday people. We know that there are many things you could be doing with your time and we appreciate your decision to share this time with us. I'm Irving Joyner. And I'm April Dawson. We're law professors at North Carolina Central University School of Law and we're your co-hosts. The Legal Eagle Review is sponsored by the NCCU School of Law and the Virtual Justice Project. We thank you for joining us this evening. Juneteenth, which is celebrated on June 19th, recognizes the issuance of the Emancipation Proclamation on January 1, 1863, and the official conclusion of the Civil War on May 13, 1865. This celebration date results from the arrival of General Gordon Granger in Galveston, Texas on June 19, 1865, when he announced to the inhabitants that slavery had ended. In 1865, we did not have the 7 o'clock morning or 6 o'clock evening news, and many people did not know of this occurrence. At any rate, June 19th became the symbolic date for the celebration of the end of slavery following celebrations which began in Texas in 1866. As a holiday, Juneteenth is now celebrated in 45 states and in the District of Columbia. For this year, in Durham and in Cary, Juneteenth will be celebrated on June 15th. The actual or official end of slavery occurred on different dates in different states. Whenever and wherever it occurred, there were celebrations among those who were freed and by their supporters. One thing that we can be sure of about slavery is that it exacted a tremendous toll on enslaved Africans and upon their descendants. For generations, Africans were forced to provide free labor for whites and were subjected to the most brutal and degrading treatment imaginable. Despite the joy and celebration associated with the ending of slavery, an increasing number of people have joined in efforts to demand reparation for the many years of forced labor of our ancestors. As defined, reparations is an effort to obtain some form of compensation for the damages inflicted upon those ancestors who were held as slaves and the dehumanization which they suffered from the many states, businesses, and other institutions which profited from that enslavement. To that reparations claim, many also advocate for compensation for the official sanctioned oppression and dehumanization which were inflicted upon African Americans during the Jim Crow era which lasted from probably around 1890 up until about 1970. By every measure, the impact of slavery and Jim Crow continued to negatively impact African Americans and are the principal causes of the huge wealth gap which presently exists in the United States between African Americans and whites. So joining us tonight to discuss these topics a Dr. Keisha Bentley Edwards, an assistant professor of medicine at Duke University and the research director at the Cook Center on Social Equity, and Dr. Sandy Darity, who is the director 
of the Samuel DeVos Cook Center on Social Equity at Duke. So we want to thank both of you for joining with us this evening for uh, for this discussion. Hi, I'm glad to be here. Okay. Thank you for having us. Well, let, let me just start off uh, with, with both of you. you you're at the uh, Samuel DeVos Cook Center for Social Equity. And Samuel DeVos Cook is a... Um, famous figure within uh, at least African-American academia. A lot of people don't know a lot about him. So can you kind of give us a little background on uh, Samuel DeVos uh, Cook and then uh, talk a little bit about what the uh, Center for Social uh, Equity does at Duke? So Samuel DeVos Cook um, was the first known black faculty member at Duke University. And... um, he was a political scientist. Uh, he was an expert on uh, Southern political behavior, Southern political activity, and uh, did some excellent scholarly research on white citizens' councils and their activities. Okay. Um, he also subsequently to his time on the faculty at Duke became the president of uh, Dillard University in New Orleans. And uh, I think perhaps uh, he is better known for that, particularly in the black community. Um, But he was a path-breaking individual at Duke. He was a close friend of Martin Luther King Jr. because they both attended Morehouse at the same time. They were in the cohort during uh, World War II who entered uh, entered Morehouse at 16 years of age. through a special program that was designed to try to bolster uh, the size of the classes at Morehouse during uh, during the war period, um, and so uh, he's he's particularly famous for extending uh, Martin Uth- Martin Luther King's notion of the beloved community in a wide variety of speeches and contexts that he made and. Uh, it's really truly an honor to have a research center that's that's named after him. So yeah. now people are going to wonder: Is there any relation to W. E. B. Du Bois? Yeah, that's a great question, and people always ask that. Uh, but we have no evidence that there is. Although the the last name or the middle name Du Bois in his case is actually uh, somewhat an unusual one in the in the black community, and so. Um, but but there's no evidence that we know of of that, and uh, you know maybe Keisha can talk a bit about what our center actually does. <laughs> <clears throat> so uh, the Samuel Du Bois Cook Center on Social Equity, uh, we do uh, we're a group of interdisciplinary researchers in the truest sense, uh, in that we have Sandy who's an economist, I'm a psychologist, <clears throat> we have historians, we have public health people who are in public and behavioral health, um, who all work together. Um, on projects that um, deal with er- various aspects of inequities in in the in trying to um, both identify disparities and rectify those issues as well. So we look at issues of employment, um, political participation, health, which is what I um, tend to focus on, um, education, and then we also do some documentarian work that has uh, been really active in the last few years. Mm-hmm. Now, I, I know the two of you aren't uh, necessarily particularly involved in uh, Juneteenth 
uh, celebrations. But from from your perspective as uh, public policy uh, mm-hmm. developers uh, and uh, focusing uh, largely on uh, African American communities and the intersection between uh, the oppression that we have suffered and then where we're going, uh, what wh- wh- why is the celebration of Juneteenth uh, important uh, in, in, in our communities? I think for me, I, I grew up with Juneteenth. I grew up in Southern California, and I think because there was such a large Texas presence in California, um, all my life I've celebrated Juneteenth and with picnics and festivals and church celebrations, things of that nature. Um, but I think what's important about it is that it is a celebration of life and survival um, and and making a way when the world is not working with you, but still making a way, even when you look at the early stories of when Juneteenth became a bigger issue in Texas, it's the community coming to- together to celebrate that we're still here, which is amazing when you think about mm-hmm. all of the trials and tribulations that we our ancestors have gone through, our parents, grandparents, and even for people of this generation have gone through. So I, I'm always a fan of people who celebrate. Oftentimes we spend a lot of time protesting wrongs, which are very true, but sometimes you also have to celebrate the joy. Yeah, I, I would add uh, that I think that the symbolism and spirit of Juneteenth is, uh, is a powerful repudiation of the, uh, the type of narrative of slavery that's been constructed by organizations like the United Daughters of the Confederacy, uh, where they treat slavery as a benign institution that was some sort of uh, school for civilization for barbaric blacks from the African continent, and, uh, and, and that black folks were basically happy being enslaved. And I think that the kinds of celebrations that erupted upon notification of emancipation clearly indicate that black folks were not content with being slaves. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and the extent of our participation in the Union Army during the course of the mm-hmm. Civil War is another indication of the ways in which we were committed to resistance to slavery. So, so I think Juneteenth is very significant. Yeah. Well, let me just take the opportunity just to announce that uh, June 15th, uh, in both Durham and Cary, there will be uh, celebrations uh, going on uh, from uh, 1 until 10 p.m. on Main Street in Durham. Uh, there will be a Juneteenth celebration. Uh, Phyllis Coley uh, has uh, traditionally been the uh, organizer of that. And then in Cary, uh, of all places, uh, <laughs> downtown Cary Park uh, will have a uh, celebration going on from uh, 10 o'clock in the morning until uh, 2 p.m. Uh, that uh, on that uh, Saturday. And I guess you choose the uh, weekend for the celebration, even though the Juneteenth uh, date is uh, June uh, 19th. So uh, for those of you who have an interest uh, in that, uh, please uh, make your way. And in fact, if you don't have an interest in it, you need to make your way uh, mm-hmm. to, uh, to, these, uh, to these celebrations. And, uh, we, and we should say that um, if you're listening to this on Sunday, uh, unfortunately, and, and this is your first time hearing about it, you will have missed it. <laughs> we, we are taping yes. this before Saturday. However, uh, hopefully in listening to this. <laughs> <laughs> um, but you can still, you know, even if you miss those activities, hopefully some of you were able to participate in them. 
But, um, you know, if you did miss those opportunities or even if you didn't, do take an opportunity to celebrate on June 19th. And so have your own cookout, um, you know, make sure that you share it with your families and your communities. And uh, anytime we have an opportunity to celebrate, be it on June 15th, June 19th, or every day of the year, mm-hmm. we should take those opportunities. Yeah, well, I think it's also important that uh, that we talk about it. Yes, uh, absolutely. One among ourselves, mm-hmm. you know, one that there were people who were enslaved uh, and worked uh, for the uh, building of this country and were never compensated uh, for that. Uh, but then for, for others uh, who, as Sandy talks about, uh, are under the impression that those were the uh, good old days <laughs> and uh, that uh, those who want to take us back uh, mm-hmm. to, uh, to those days that they somehow feel very uh, paternalistic and maternalistic uh, toward us. So, uh, so this is a, a great time to uh, learn about uh, the uh, enslaved uh, population and also the uh, free African populations. Absolutely. Uh, particularly here in North Carolina, where there was uh, the, what the second largest group of uh, free Africans in the uh, in the country uh, during the, the uh, enslavement uh, period, so that is uh, um, something that you should give some thought to. Now, how does this Juneteenth celebration and notion and information intersect with the emerging or re-emerging call? Uh, for uh, for reparations. Hmm. I think there's a thought to that. <laughs> um, I, I mean, I, I think I would like to connect it with the fact that um, emancipation did not involve compensation. Hmm. And so while we justifiably celebrated the end of slavery, we were never given the opportunity to celebrate restitution for having been subjected to slavery. And of course, uh, at the point of the end of the Civil War, there was serious consideration given to the idea of providing the formerly enslaved folks with uh, land grants, uh, the fabled 40 acres and a mule, uh, which, although some people view this as a myth, Uh, was actually something that was under serious consideration and actually been operationalized by General Sherman uh, at the beginning of 1865. But uh, unfortunately, when Andrew Johnson succeeded Abraham Lincoln as president, uh, Johnson, who I view as the the worst president the United States ever had, and that's going some, uh, (laughs) uh, reversed the policy of the provision of land to the formerly enslaved. And so I think that that's the foundation for the wealth gap that you mentioned today, that that's where it originates is in the failure to provide the formerly enslaved with the 40 acres and a mule that they were promised. You know, I think um, one of the aspects of we were talking earlier about slavery and false narratives, even if you were to think about people who who were enslaved, who may have had a relatively, as far as slavery is concerned, more privileged position. So people who were the the chefs or the cooks for presidents, so George Washington's formerly enslaved um, chefs, when they had the opportunity, they escaped and liberated themselves. Mm -hmm. And so 
when folks have this narrative of the happy, happily enslaved Africans, um, people knew what freedom was and they knew that it was something that they didn't have, even if they were allowed to walk in the streets of Philadelphia without uh, some type of supervision. They knew they were not free. And so when they had the opportunity to uh, to escape, they did. And that should say something about this notion of the happy slave. Mm-hmm. And that's where the Juneteenth comes in, is that there were celebrations for freedom. And that freedom did have a value, but it wasn't the same as having access to a free life and a high quality of life. There was so much disease that was spread because people weren't given provisions. They were just, you just walked out with whatever you had if you were able to walk out. And some people weren't able to leave freely right away. And those are the things that have to be considered when we're talking about people who, and this is oftentimes we talk about unskilled labor. Part of the reason that uh, so many formerly enslaved people were were becoming prosperous is because they were they had skills that their formerly their former uh, owners, so to speak, had were making money off of and making profit, and they were able to build on their own skills as blacksmiths, uh, as seamstresses. And so, when we talk about the post Reconstruction area era and the violence that ensued. Part of the reason why people were prosperous were becoming prosperous on their own, even without what had been promised to them from the Freedmen's Bureau, is because they already had the skills to build and build wealth. They just in the past weren't building it for themselves; they were building it for other people. Yeah. Well, you know, when you when you when you talk about the uh, uh, those who uh, escaped uh, the uh, slavery, I always go to my hero, uh, Frederick Douglass. Yes, uh, who I, I love to uh, to talk about. Uh, but for our audience, we're talking about uh, reparations and uh, Juneteenth here on the uh, Legal Eagle Review. And uh, we want you to uh, stay with us, and we'll be right back in a couple of minutes as we uh, continue this conversation. Since 2010, the North Carolina Central University School of Law has been at the forefront of virtual legal education with the launch of its Virtual Justice Project. The Virtual Justice Project is an innovation in legal education and technology. NCCU School of Law pioneered this approach to address the underrepresentation of African American lawyers and a lack of access to justice for low income and marginalized communities. Virtual pre-law courses prepare students, wherever they are, for the rigor of law school. The Know Your Rights series offers legal information sessions that empower participants to understand the law and to promote self-advocacy. Both the pre-law courses and the legal information sessions are made possible through telepresence and high-definition video conferencing. Course listings and contact information, along with more detail about the Virtual Justice Project, are on the NCCU Law website at law.nccu.edu. Okay, we're back on the uh, Legal Eagle Review. Uh, we're talking about uh, Juneteenth and uh, reparations uh, this evening. Our guest, uh, uh, Dr. Sandy Darity, who is the uh, director of the Samuel DeVos Cook Center 
on social equity at Duke University, and he brings uh, with him uh, the uh, research director at the Cook Center, Dr. Keisha Bentley uh, Edwards, and uh, they have been doing a lot of work dealing with uh, the impact of uh, economic uh, health and other disparities uh, experienced by African Americans, uh, and uh, that is largely traceable back uh, to uh, to slavery. And uh, we ended up with uh, me talking about my hero, uh, Frederick Douglass, uh, who uh, decided that he wanted to be free. He recognized that he was uh, a slave and that there was a better life, uh, so he got up and left. And, uh, <laughs> went to, uh, to New York and Connecticut and started a uh, newspaper, became a uh, uh, well-renowned uh, orator and uh, advocate for uh, uh, abolition of, uh, of slavery. Uh, and there were others who were engaged in efforts to uh, help uh, Africans uh, to, uh, to, to, to escape uh, slavery. I'm always thinking about uh, Galloway uh, <laughs> here in North Carolina, yeah. you know, who uh, yeah. uh, walked into the interior of North Carolina to take uh, the enslaved people out to uh, New Bern and uh, Wilmington, where they uh, caught uh, boats uh, to uh, go up uh, up north, uh, <laughs> as, as as they would say, and then yeah, he was he was almost kind of a superhero type. Oh, <laughs> all, all, amazing, all over, yeah, amazing story, amazing story, <laughs> great, 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 great story. Uh, you know? And uh, but you were talking about, uh, I think, uh, during our break, uh, another superhero. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, Harriet Tubman. Harriet Tubman. Harriet Tubman. Um, there were a lot of people who left. Uh, they wouldn't have had a fugitive slave law otherwise. Mm -hmm. uh, but also, um, uh, once the Civil War was underway and the Union Army was moving through the South, tons and tons, I mean, scores of black people just packed up whatever little things they had and 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 traveled with the Union Army. So I think W.E.B. Du Bois called this the uh, the general strike. Uh, you know, where, where they uh, had decided they were not going to stay on these plantations anymore as soon as they had an opportunity to leave. Uh, but Harriet Tubman um, uh, actively and heroically uh, assisted I, upwards of about 100 uh, enslaved people uh, in, in, in getting out of Maryland in particular. Uh, but there's a quotation that's attributed to her that is actually false, where she allegedly said that she freed a thousand slaves and could have freed a thousand more if they had known they were slaves. Uh, I think uh, the, the reason this fabrication has been generated is to try to promote the view that uh, black folks are their own worst enemy. Uh, that we don't really understand our situation and we make bad decisions. Uh, but Tubman never said that. Uh, I don't think she ever would have said that. And I think enslaved blacks in the United States clearly understood what their status was. They did not like it, and they fought against it. And, you know, that false quotation kind of ties directly into reparations, right? So when we think about the circumstances that African-American communities 
have today, the circumstances in which we find ourselves, uh, and we think about the wealth gap, we think about educational inequalities. So often people say, you know, these circumstances exist because of what black folk do. Keisha, can you talk about uh, the role that reparation, why it's important for us to even have this discussion about reparations in the context of understanding the realities of why it is that we are where we are in terms of the African-American community? Well, oftentimes when you start talking about uh, the status of black people, the first conversation is, uh, well, what are what are black people doing wrong? And, and not actually acknowledging that there are a lot of black people who are doing everything right. You can do everything right, or you could do most things right, and you will still have uh, you won't ha- you'll have diminishing returns, as my economist friends say, <laughs> uh, uh, on that investment of doing everything right. And and so e- and that's something that has to be acknowledged that there has to be some type of foundation that you're building off of that can be a jumping off point. And most African-Americans don't have that wealth foundation to be a jumping off part point, whether it's uh, to fund education, uh, your house, a business, it's to, to be able to take that leap of faith on a business uh, without having foundational wealth. It's a cause for you can't survive any type of rockiness in the economy. You can't experiment. It just limits what you can do with your creativity in business, the ways that people think about the way that you build wealth in business. So we have to support black businesses. I do want you to support black businesses, but that's not a key to wealth uh, and, and diminishing that wealth gap. We talk about our health inequities, uh, but without talking about our access to health resources, both financially and just the physical, let me get to the doctors, especially when you start talking about specialists. What does the transportation system look like? All these things, when you start tracing it back and tracing it back, you see that those roots were in uh, slavery, the reconstruction period, the demolishing of black communities that were uh, trying to say, you know what? We can't count on the government to do this. Let's do this ourselves, build our own schools. And we don't acknowledge that the people, the white people and the governments in those areas actively destroyed those communities. And then people had to rebuild them again. And at some point, there are some people like, why am I going to keep rebuilding and fighting when every time I do, it gets destroyed? Well, you know, st- mm-hmm. start, starting out, uh, after those, those former uh, enslaved Individuals came out with skills. Yes, uh, <laughs> uh, uh, many skills, and uh, were I know, I know, for instance, in North Carolina, uh, the top educator during those days was John Chavis, mm-hmm. uh, who was a uh, free African out of uh, Granville uh, County. Uh, we look at uh, you know you mentioned Abraham Galloway uh, earlier, who helped uh, really to uh, draft. Uh, the uh, North Carolina Constitution and was a uh, powerful figure in the uh, North Carolina uh, General Assembly and all of its early uh, glory. Uh, What happened with all of those skills that were developed uh, by those individuals uh, and the building of schools uh, even uh, for uh, for African Americans? So what happened uh, to all of that that, uh, stifled that uh, that growth and, and the development, notwithstanding the uh, absence of the 40 acres and a mule. 
Well, uh, Keisha and I have a paper that we co-authored with several collaborators. Mm -hmm. um, and the paper is an attempt to rework the Kerner Commission report mm. from 1968, which was the uh, report that was... Uh, was 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 uh, generated by this commission that was established by President Lyndon Johnson in the aftermath of uh, the urban uprisings in 1967, primarily in black communities across the urban north. Okay, uh, but we we did a paper where we tried to rework the commission's report to focus on the series of white massacres mm -hmm. that had taken place in the United States. Uh, and I think our paper is focused on the post-Reconstruction era? Absolutely. It's the post-Reconstruction okay. era. So even though there, it was a lot of violence during, violence during the Reconstruction era, which <laughs> was immediately after um, slavery ended, uh, a Reconstruction ended about 1877. So we basically did it from 1877 to 1967, which was the period where you had all these uh, riots and and violence. But initially, when you talked about race uh, race race riots, you were talking about white violence on black communities, mm -hmm. and that's going back to the period that you're talking about, where you had all the skilled these skilled workers and, and, and craftsmen and, and women um, who were who decided to create their own communities. So they'd have we had the movie uh, out about, oh gosh, 20 years ago, Rosewood, uh, that talked about that. Um, we have talk about Tulsa, the 100 year anniversary of Tulsa um, approaching. And then we have the Tulsa riots. And then we also have that bloody period, especially after um, wars. Right. So after World War One, um, you also had a, a rising after a, a rise of this white initiated violence and massacres on black communities after World War Two. Uh, and these are critical periods of where you have expansion of the black community, people developing their own communities, but also uh, migrating to the north um, as well as to the west and and facing violence when. Mm -hmm. You, you start and, having and, some and financial and, stability. And don't forget 1898 Wilmington. Absolutely. Well, I, I was going to say, you, you've done a lot of work on that. <laughs> yes. Uh, and, and you had your students do some research on it, too, yeah. I think. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, I think the, the other, another year that needs to be highlighted is, is the one immediately following World War I that Keisha mentioned, which mm -hmm. is 1919. Mm -hmm. uh, the uh, sociologist, uh, novelist, writer Eve Ewing has a new book called 1919 which is a, a, a prose poem about um, the uh, Chicago massacre mm -hmm. yeah. uh, but in 1919 there was a series of I guess upwards of 15 to 20 of these yes. white white massacres that took place ranging from Elaine Arkansas to Washington, to Washington D.C. I mean, it was north and south. North and yes. Yeah, and uh, so 1919 might have been what they call it the, the bloody, bloody summer. summer. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So, so that raises a question about reparations and what reparations is designed to um, address. So mm -hmm. we've got the government initiated and um, you know uh, 
obstacles, right, where the government actually, because of policies and laws that were put in place, uh, prevented African-Americans from being able to excel and to grow and develop. And then we've got white-initiated kind of private violence. So when we're talking about reparations, is reparations designed to address uh, both of those harms when we think about government and then we think about private? Yeah, I think so. But I also would argue that the... uh, the government not only initiated certain waves of harms, but the government fundamentally was complicit with the harms that might have been executed privately. Uh, if we think about these various massacres, uh, it's almost always the case that local law enforcement agencies uh, were actually involved in the mm-hmm. destruction of black lives and property themselves, or at, 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 at least they looked away while this took place. And so, uh, you know, my, in, in, in my opinion, uh, the fundamental claim for reparations should be directed at the U.S. government uh, because uh, the U.S. government is responsible for the climate and environment and legal structure that permitted all of these things to take place. So when we think about, this actually makes me think of, um, so Georgetown is has gone through this effort mm-hmm. of Um, coming up with funds that are generated by the students to address uh, slaves that were sold, those that were enslaved, sold by Georgetown. Can you talk a little bit about that program and how that fits into our greater discussion of of reparations? I mean, I think that when it comes to the student-led initiative uh, on reparations, it shows that people are thinking about it and feeling like a certain amount of redress needs to happen. Uh, And that part is important. Um, I do have issues with the students themselves um, funding it and the the university still has not made that commitment. (laughs) The students made a vote that this is how they would like their student fees to to be paid or Mm -hmm. to be utilized. However, the, the Georgetown University and their board of directors have not agreed to this. This was a proposal Mm -hmm. uh, that's received a lot of attention, but it has not necessarily been initiated as far as I know. And I, I think that it's a, it's a, it's good for the reparations movement because it means that young people are thinking and talking about it. But um, it, I don't look at this as a reparations because even when you think about what Georgetown initially offered when their truths were revealed, when it came to their role in, in slavery, um, what they offered was, um, was admission. It wasn't free. It, it was like, if you can get here, you know, <laughs> get into Georgetown, we'll give you a scholarship, but we're not going to do anything uh, for you edu- educationally to prepare you um, for admission and success at Georgetown. So it's, it's one of those uh, good PR gambles uh, where you look great by saying, hey, we are going to offer you the scholarship, uh, but not necessarily offering the foundation so that you can be successful in achieving in that scholarship. Yeah, I mean, and they did not guarantee admission no. for descendants no. of the folks who had no, you been still have sold to, to the Deep South. Exactly. Yeah, they, they said they would give them preference, yes. but, but mm-hmm. there, there was no admission guarantee. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm, uh, Kirsten Mullen and I have uh, completed a manuscript on reparations that will be published in February 2020 by the UNC Press. And one of the things that Kirsten discovered while we were doing work on this manuscript is that 
the Jesuits. I mean, the, the Georgetown event is actually a, a tiny fraction of the activities of the Jesuits, who apparently had become the largest slaveholders in the state of Maryland uh, during the course of the 18th century. Um, so uh, what's at stake for me from this perspective is that uh, the behavior of institutions like Georgetown as well as a host of other colleges and universities among the most prestigious in the United States all occurs in the context where slavery is a legal activity. Mm -hmm. And so once again, I think that the claim has to be directed at the U.S. government. I admire the sentiments of the students, mm -hmm. but I think that it leads us to treat reparations as a matter of individual guilt rather than as a matter of national responsibility. Mm -hmm. Well, when, when, when we do that, do we let off the hook? Those many institutions, uh, businesses, uh, colleges and universities that have uh, profited uh, individually, corporately, uh, from uh, the, uh, the oppression of, uh, of African Americans? Uh, there is a sense in which you can make that argument, except I, I think I, I would also say that, um, uh, that the charge I would give to these institutions that have either direct or indirect complicity with the whole process is that they should form a lobbying organization mm -hmm. to demand reparations for all black Americans, uh, all eligible black Americans. And so, uh, so, so I think that they do have a responsibility, but I don't think the responsibility is satisfied by them doling out scholarships or creating reparations funds. I think that the, the real responsibility that they should take on is to ensure that the national obligation for reparations is met. This is the uh, Legal Eagle Review, and uh, Dr. Keisha Bentley Edwards and uh, Dr. Sandy Darity. Uh, both from uh, Duke uh, University, the uh, Samuel DuBois Cook Center. Uh, our guests uh, this evening, where we're talking about uh, Juneteenth and uh, reparations, want you to uh, stay with us. We'll be right back to uh, con continue uh, this conversation. The Center for Child and Family Health was founded in 1996 as a consortium of North Carolina Central University, Duke University, the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, and the Durham community. Since that time, CCFH has become a national leader in research, training, and the treatment of childhood trauma. The mission of CCFH is to care for children and families affected by abuse, neglect, and other forms of trauma. Its professionals utilize a multidisciplinary, measurable approach to provide prevention services, treatment for children and families, professional training, and research related to childhood traumatic stress by uniquely integrating community-based practice and academic excellence. 
Its vision is that every child has the right to be loved, nurtured, and safe. As a center of excellence, CCFH strives to define the highest standards in the prevention and treatment of childhood trauma. In this way, stability and hope can be restored for children and their families. Information about the Center for Child and Family Health is at 919-419-3474 or the Center's website at www.ccfhnc.org. And we're back. Thank you again for tuning in to the Legal Eagle Review here on WNCU 90.7 FM. I'm April Dawson, and my co-host Irving Joyner and I have been talking with Dr. Sandy Darity, the director of the Samuel Du Bois Cook Center for Social Equity at Duke University, and Dr. Keisha Bentley-Edwards, who is a professor and research director at the Cook Center. And right before the break, Sandy, you were talking about the role that these private institutions and public institutions might be able to play in addition to addressing uh, the harms that, that they played when it came to those that were formerly enslaved. Um, is to focus on lobbying efforts. So can you talk a little bit about what's gone on in Congress? And let's first start with H.R. 40 and efforts that have been made by Congress people to get this issue of reparations before Congress? So H.R. 40 is a uh, piece of legislation in the House of Representatives that is intended to establish a commission for the study and development of reparations for African Americans. Um, I believe it was first developed by uh, in Congressman, in former Congressman Conyers' office, mm-hmm circa 1989. Uh, It never got out of the House Judiciary Committee, so it never reached the floor of Congress for debate or vote. Uh, Apparently, the current current representative who has management of the bill, Sheila Jackson-Lee, is trying to get it out of committee and onto the floor of Congress for consideration. And uh, my understanding is they will finally have a set of hearings on the bill, first set of hearings ever, uh, on, on June 10th, uh, mm-hmm. June 19th. Uh, and uh, uh, so uh, while I, I think that there are some important modifications that need to be made in the legislation, before it's enacted, uh, this is clearly a signal moment, and uh, it's a moment that should be seized upon so it doesn't disappear. <laughs> uh, but uh, yeah, I'm pers- personally, I'm very excited about the fact that uh, HR 40 is now getting some serious consideration. Well, what 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 accounts for the increase in the willingness? of people to talk about uh, reparations. Uh, now, we have uh, presidential candidates uh, talking about it. Uh, we have an increased uh, interest in the academic uh, community about uh, reparations uh, at uh, colleges and universities. They are 
researching history uh, to uh, try to unearth their involvement uh, in uh, the slavery efforts or Jim Crow efforts. And uh, so what's accounting for this, this, this new interest? I mean, I think you have to look at a, a, a lot of things aligning at the same time. So you have uh, scholars that have been talking about this for a very long time. Um, you know, you have activists that have been talking about it for a long time. But I think with social media, it's allowed a lot of different parties to talk together in a way um, that it hasn't been able to be broadly spoken about. Um, I also think that, um, I mean, I, I went to, to Howard, so I felt like we talked about it um, when I was a student. Um, but in when I went to graduate school and in predominantly white spaces, it wasn't part of the conversation. I think that we have more black faculty who do this research on predominantly white campuses as well. So I think you have black colleges, you have white colleges, uh, you know, you have the media. All these people are talking about it at the same time in a space uh, where it's publicly accessible. It's not behind a paywall the way you would have in most scholarly work. So I think that that's part of what, what helps build this conversation. But it's not a new conversation. Um, it's just a heightened conversation right now. Yeah, I think there's been an ebb and flow over time, mm -hmm. uh, particularly in the black community. Um, we, you know, the, the first major wave of uh, attention drawn to the question of reparations after the denial of 40 acres and a mule was Callie House's campaign to uh, provide pension funds for mm -hmm. formerly enslaved folks mm -hmm. at the end of the 19th century. Um, I think that there was a tremendous amount of attention being drawn to reparations on college campuses uh, during uh, the, the latter part of the uh, 20th century. And uh, some people have argued that that conversation, which was uh, being heavily engaged in on college campuses, was stymied by 911. And that it was 911 that eliminated the uh, the extended discussion of reparations at that point. Um, I think in 2014, uh, uh, Tanasi Coates brings out this article in the Atlantic, which somehow had a more significant resonance across the population than virtually anything that had occurred since 2001. And I think that that reactivated the conversation. But what's really unique about the present moment is actual political candidates yes. using the language of mm -hmm. reparations mm -hmm. and talking about H.R. 40 and other potential legislation that might accomplish some of the goals of a reparations program. And personally, I think the central goal is eliminating the racial wealth gap. But... Uh, but it, that, that's really ex an extraordinary moment. Uh, I don't think we've had anything quite like this since Reconstruction itself, to have actual serious political candidates talk about the question of restitution for, for black Americans. And Sandy, you've been working on and writing and researching about the racial wealth gap and reparations for, for decades. Does this moment in time surprise you that we have kind of leading Democratic presidential candidates 
coming out and saying that they uh, believe that there needs to be discussions about reparations. Yeah, for no, absolutely. I'm startled. Uh, <laughs> I'm, uh, I'm pleased, but I'm, I'm startled. <laughs> so what's the next best step? So we've got this discussion going on. What, what would you like to see happen next? So before Japanese Americans received reparations for being unjustly incarcerated during World War II, there was a commission that was inaugurated that had two tasks. One, set the historical record straight, but also design a program of restitution. And that, that commission was called the Commission on Wartime Relocation and Internment of Civilians. So it was essentially uh, a commission that was tasked with setting the foundation for the legislation that ultimately became the reparations program. For Japanese Americans. So I think in parallel fashion, we need a congressional commission that would do the same thing with respect to reparations for uh, for black American descendants of folks who were enslaved in the United States. And that uh, commission is what's embodied in H.R. 40. Uh, I think, as I said, there needs to be some modifications in the law. But, uh, but I think that's the next step is to actually activate a commission that would be responsible for setting the historical record straight on the trajectory of racial injustice in the United States and designing a, uh, a program that can be translated into legislation for reparations. Now, a a as an economist, and uh, you, you, you project things in the economic uh, realm, um, how much is owed uh, to us? And, and, and reparations, and, and mm -hmm. to whom is it owed? <laughs> so I think that the, the minimum estimates that I've been able to arrive at that seem reasonable are in the two to three trillion dollar range. Um, so I think that uh, the presidential candidate Marianne Williamson has said, and I think she's the only one who has explicitly said that she's in favor of a reparations program and stated an amount. Initially, she said $100 billion. I think she's raised it to 200 to $500 billion after some folks like me said that the initial sum was paltry. But even what she's proposing now is below what I view as a minimum threshold. So minimum threshold has got to be 2 to $3 trillion. And, um, and who should receive it? Uh, black American descendants of folks who were enslaved in the United States. So in the work that I've done over the years, there have been two criteria for eligibility. Uh, the first is an individual would have to demonstrate that he or she had an ancestor who was enslaved in the United States. At least one. We'll take one. <laughs> and, and then the second condition is that for up to 10 years before the enactment of a reparations program, or a reparation study commission, whichever comes first, the individual would have to demonstrate that he or she self-identified as black, Negro, African-American, or the equivalent. Mm -hmm. So passing folk won't be able to benefit from they that. Ancestry.com will not save you. <laughs> no, there's, there's, there's no DNA test. There's no skin shade test. There's no fractions test. Mm -hmm. You know, either you have an ancestor who was enslaved here and you committed yourself mm -hmm. to being part of the black community or you didn't. Mm -hmm. yeah, yeah. So, Keisha, um, so Sandy was talking about, in terms of this commission, one of the first things that it would do would be to set the historical record straight. And 
you were talking about on the uh, HBCU campuses, you know, for many, many years, decades, discussions about reparations. Uh, we're seeing more of a discussion on um, uh, white institutions, predominantly white institutions. What are your thoughts about the greater kind of community and, and country really having a good understanding of why reparations are um, required? And, and, and will we be able to sufficiently educate people about the accurate historical record? Well, we have to actually give good education across the board um, on what the experience was and what the what the repercussions were of slavery, uh, and that and when I say across the board, I mean nationally. And we have to talk about it in schools. Our textbooks are not accurate um, most times when it comes to slavery and Reconstruction and Jim Crow. Um, I still, I mean, I, I mean, I'm 43 years old, and I still remember my textbooks having pictures of happy slaves, uh, you know, fiddle and all. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, and and unfortunately, you may not have those pictures in textbooks now, but you still have. Um, have that language in there. So we have to do an accurate assessment of what slavery was. And it wasn't just um, the tilling of fields and working in plantations. We have factory work. We have uh, J. Marion Sims who did experiments uh, on black women who were enslaved uh, to, and, with, and, and his discoveries when it came to gynecology are still used today. And so we have um, a lot of issues that need to be accounted for um, as far as how our bodies were used. Uh, 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 Dinah Ramey uh, Berry has a book called The Price for the Pound of Flesh where she talks about how enslaved Africans were used from their time in the uterus all the way to the cadaver usage in med schools across the country. And so all of this needs to be accounted for. So not just the traditional gone with the gone with the wind picture of enslavement, but also the various ways that our bodies uh, and our minds and our knowledge were, were was used to develop this country and to develop individual as well as national wealth, and that needs to be accounted for. But it also needs to be translated in in ways that are understandable for people throughout their educational level and status. And so I think that's the big issue when you talk about getting an accurate assessment of the history as well as the current conditions. And I think that's something that has to really be driven in is how these things can draw. It's not an indirect line to today. It mm -hmm. is a very direct line, and that's what has to be seen. Mm -hmm. yeah. Well, S Sandy talked about the uh, commission uh, dealing with the uh, internment of the uh, Japanese uh, community and how it kind of predated uh, the uh, reparations uh, that uh, Congress passed. Uh, and that was a kind of a uh, low-key, low-level uh, operation uh, that, that occurred. Uh, as you talk about uh, reparations for African Americans, it's not going to be low-key. What kind of pushback do you anticipate from a racialized America uh, against uh, efforts uh, and discussions uh, favorable to uh, reparations in, 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 the, in the present day? Unfortunately, there's been, when I think about the black community, there's 
a lot of people have tried to make black people feel ashamed of enslavement as if it was something that they that we allowed to happen to ourselves or our ancestors allowed to happen. And that's just not the case. And even as we talk about people who liberated themselves or escaped slavery, this was no easy feat. And it was still a, a very small percentage of people who were able to do it. And usually they were in border states um, like Maryland. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so uh, so that's something that has to has to be acknowledged as well. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I just want to say uh, I like to I like to say that uh, reparations is a precondition for making America great for the first time. <laughs> yes. <laughs> you know, Keisha, when you were talking about in terms of the pushback um, that Irv mentioned and, and thinking about the African-American community, it, it goes back to the point that you made, I think, so eloquently about the education and so education is failing not just uh you know white america but black america as well and the Mm -hmm. fact that we have this sense of shame stems from us maybe looking at the gaps the disparities Mm -hmm. and not understanding why it exists and so if you've got you know little black children uh in elementary school and and the information that they're getting about slavery because I remember as well mm-hmm. I'm a little older than you are um, a lot older um, <laughs> but I remember being you know the only you know black girl in my class and whenever the topic of slavery came up I, you know I just wanted to kind of collapse in on myself um, because all eyes would be on me mm-hmm. and the and the narrative that was being portrayed was you know these you know individuals from Africa were coming over and uh, and they you know worked in the fields and that was kind of it that was the mm-hmm. end of the story so I think the, the point and the emphasis about education is where we have to do a much better job in order for reparations to really get that traction and for us to see some, some real gains made. And Absolutely. we have to continue doing that after reparations Absolutely. is in place. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And, and to also challenge narratives. So yep. when we talk about the American dream, who had access to the American dream? So... Um, you know, we talk about immigrants and people will talk about my family came here, you know, in the 1940s with five dollars and a dream and not talk about how America supported that dream, uh, who had access to the GI Bill, uh, who had access to um, uh, who who was and who was not redlined as far as the mortgage system um, was in place. So those things have to be accounted for. That's part of the history about who had access to government resources before. The government has given resources to the to our citizens um, before. So this is not something that's new, um, and this is not a handout, and this is not welfare, and that's something else that needs to be acknowledged. That this is not welfare. This is restitution. Mm-hmm. A massive education uh, mm-hmm. job is uh, is in front. Thank y'all for uh, for joining us uh, this uh, this evening. Thank uh, you for this mm-hmm. discussion. We need to have more of mm-hmm. uh, of these discussions because members of our audience and their family members and people in their communities need to hear uh, about this because there is a case uh, to be made and uh, we have uh, the the data that would support that. So. Uh, And we are unfortunately out of time, but this has been a great discussion. And we'd like to thank our guest, Dr. Sandy Darity, the director of the Samuel Du Bois Cook Center on Social Justice at Duke University, and Dr. Keisha Bentley Edwards, who is a professor and research director at the Cook Center. And of course, we'd like to thank you, our listening audience, for spending your Sunday evening with us. We hope that we have 
continued your education on reparations and that you will share this episode and this topic with your friends and family. If you have any questions, please send us an email. You can reach us at LegalEagleReview at nccu.edu. And don't forget to follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Until next week, stay informed and engaged. <music>